because we assume by our definition of perfect, the world is supposed to be perfect. And that's, of course, an assumption. What it seems God has done is created an imperfect world so we could join God in the creating of a little bit of goodness and perfection. That was Father Richard Rohr, and this is the Things About Podcast. Well, today's guest for our Things Above conversation is Father Richard Rohr. Father Richard Rohr is a globally recognized ecumenical teacher, writer, and speaker. He's a Franciscan priest of the New Mexico province and founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation, the CAC, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Father Richard is the author of numerous books, including Everything Belongs, Breathing Underwater, Falling Upward, The Divine Dance, which I really love, and Immortal Diamond, which I really love, and his newest book, The Universal Christ, which I love as well. And I would love to talk about those books for sure. Father Richard is friends with Oprah and Bono, which are two people who don't don't even need last names. They're so famous. Uh, but I just love your work, and I'm so glad that you're with us. So welcome, Father Rohr, to the Things Above Conversation and the Things Above Podcast. I'm always happy to reconnect with Kansas. Thank you. <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, I could talk to you for hours and wear you out with questions because I love your work so much. I've read most of what you've written. Well, but I want to focus honored. on, on uh, yeah, it's just thank you for your work. And uh, But I want to focus on on three books, really. And I know we can't do justice to all of them, but Immortal Diamond and Divine Dance and The Universal Christ, which I think the last two you think are in some ways are, are companion books and The Universal Christ being kind of your, your life book. Um, but I'd love to just ask some questions about those books, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Okay. Fun. Let's go. Okay. So Immortal Diamond, which has meant so much to me. And I, I think the title comes from the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, so I'm going to read the line that I love so much. Okay. I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am, and this jack, joke, poor potsherd, patch, matchwood, immortal diamond is immortal diamond. Gosh, you know, I, I was reading that line just the other day, Richard, and I thought, man, that, that just captures so much. I am all at once what Christ is. Is, is that where you took the title of the book? Oh, of course. Yes, I, I had an excellent course in college on Hopkins. Oh, wow. And he's been a favorite all my life. Uh, he clearly was a, was a mystic. He got it. Yeah. Even if he was a Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> Says the Franciscan, right, yeah. Well, you know, in, in Immortal Diamonds, uh, you have a, a wonderful line about the soul. And I just want to talk about that because the soul is so important, I think, and defining our terms, defining what the soul is, is so challenging. And I've studied lots of people and yeah. I would love to get your take because you write on page 16 of Mortal Diamond, your soul is who you are in God and who God is in you. You can never really lose your soul. You can only fail to realize it. Wow. But say more about the soul in your understanding. Well, I can see why you asked the question, because the word has been used in so many different ways. But the, the constants in general is 
that essential part of everything that makes it what it is. It's the core, it's the uh, real. And uh, in many people's mind, uh, mine, ours too, I'm sure, it's the eternal. Now, we would, as Christians, would perhaps speak of it as the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. But it's, it, it gives a core of objectivity to the human person. Uh, so you don't have to search your whole life for your identity. There's a part of you that already knows. And much of our life is, is finding that inner knower. That would be the best way I mm. could describe it. Mm. That's so good. I, I'm. Uh, are you familiar with the writings of um, Father Adrian von Kamm? Do you know his work at all? Oh, you know, I, I used to read him a lot in the 60s, I think it was. Yeah. 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 But he was excellent. I really love his, his and he, he defines the, the soul as the sort of the founding life form of every person. And he talks about the Christ form of our soul. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I really saw a connection between his understanding of the Christ form of our soul and your work. I thought I see a connection there that this, this idea that this soul that is, that it come, we come into being, right? We, we are all incarnated as, as human persons. But that founding life form really contains everything within, you know, who who we are, and it just kind of unfolds, which is um, a beautiful thing. And I, I just I love what you write about the soul, and I, I just think it's important because we use the word so much, yes, and yet we understand it so little, yes, and that's because it's a a multivalent word. You know, whenever you're dealing with spiritual mystery. It never stops revealing itself. It's always another layer and another layer. And so you don't have to come to a final definition. And that's very true of the word soul. Mm. What I've been pointing out lately is that our word animal, and Mm. you probably know I'm a lover of animals, but comes from the Latin word anima, which means an ensouled being. And isn't it interesting? that our ancestors in the language recognize that even animals have souls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so this tree I'm looking out my window at has a soul. So uh, I think our big mistake was we limited it too much to human beings. And frankly, at least this is my opinion, then we cease to understand it. Yeah. Once it became a limiting factor that we could destroy or save instead of recognize and love, the very concept was lost for for secular America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And yet it's such a part of our, our language. I mean, even in um, President Biden's inauguration, he quoted Lincoln, who said, you know, my whole soul is in it. That's right. And that became yeah. this, you know, the, the press yeah. picked up on that. And I thought, you know, what, what we just love that word because we know, I think uh-huh. that, and I love how Von Kamm used the idea that we're, we're divinely formed mysteries. Like we're never going to fully know, right, you know, who we are. And yet we know that there's some part of us and some part of every person and everything that has this, this incredible transcendence to it. And so I, I just love all that you've done on that. Let me just pivot to talk about 
you know, everybody talks about the problem of evil. And I love how you flip that question and, and you write in The Immortal Diamond, we spent centuries of philosophy trying to solve the problem of evil, yet I believe the much more confounding and astounding issue is the problem of good. How do we account for so much gratuitous and sheer goodness in this world? Tackling this problem would achieve much better results. I just, I really like that. Say more about, you know, why is it that we want to focus on evil and the problem of sin and, and fail to see the good? Well, whatever I'm going to say, it's not the final answer, but there is strangely in the human person an attraction to the dark side, to evil, to our own suffering, our own pain. We even get attached to it. We're problem solvers. And we almost create problems so we can solve them. Hmm. And uh, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. But I see it in a lot of human beings. Without a problem, they don't know really how to motivate themselves to get through the day. Hmm. And we did that with evil. Here's a problem that we have to solve. Because we assume, by our definition of perfect, the world is supposed to be perfect. And that's, of course, an assumption. Mm. Uh, What it seems God has done is created an imperfect world so we could join God in the creating of a little bit of goodness and perfection. It is offered to us in its imperfect state. Everything, everything. Uh, as Jesus says to the rich young man, God alone is good. The rest of us are varying shades of good. Mm. But if we concentrate on the gift, the gratuity of goodness, I think we'd be much happier and much healthier. Yeah. But it's equally difficult to resolve. Yeah. This podcast is called Things Above. It's Colossians 3, Set Your Minds on Things Above. And the whole point of this podcast, why I started it, is to help us set our minds on that which is good and beautiful and true. And, um, you know, this idea and what Paul was getting at. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your minds and see the things that are above. And, you know, I, I just find in my own life, when I engage in appreciative thinking, when I engage in seeing the good, that it is, uh, my, to quote my favorite movie, it is a wonderful life, right? Even though there is, there's the Mr. Potters of the world, there's the dark side. Um, there's so much good and so much beauty all around us uh, that I, I think focusing on that is huge. And I just, I, I love that line in the book. It really stopped me when I read that about, you know, what, well, thank what, you. what if we started with original goodness and original goodness. Yeah. And I developed that, as you know, more in the Universal Christ book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which I really I want to get to in a, in a minute. The other question I think that that I think you were addressing in in um, Immortal Diamond is the the true self and the false self, which I've thought a lot mm-hmm. about as well. Um, but on page twenty four, you write inside your true self, you no longer have to work to feel important. You are intrinsically important. And on the next page, you write, you don't have to climb up to your true self; you fall into it. So don't avoid falling. Uh, I, I love that, you know, because we climb and we think I've got to achieve. And there's this other sense, and you write so well about that, that, that our true self uh, doesn't have to strive to, to be valuable. It doesn't, yes. 
What good news, huh? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yes, that we haven't made that clear to people is one of my greatest sadnesses. We made it a whole achievement contest. Uh, again, I think because we had to have a problem to overcome. Mm-hmm. And, and we didn't know to how to rest in something good and true and beautiful. Yeah. Which is what makes it good news. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. It really does. You know, I I read this article about you in The New Yorker that was just fantastic. But there was a line there that said, it says, uh, Roar wakes up around 5.45 a.m. each day and spends an hour praying wordlessly. I'm trying to find my way to yes, he told me, adding that he often wakes up in a state of no. I just love that. I love, you know, how do we find our way to yes? And what is that part of us that wakes up with the no? And, and, and what do you, I just really want to know, Father Richard, what do you, how do you find your way to yes? Because I want to find my way to yes every day. How beautifully put. Uh, <clears throat> the only reason I can write things like that, Jim, is because uh, it's true for me. Uh, I'm an idealist by nature, a perfectionist, one on the Enneagram. And so I tend to begin with what's wrong. What's, what is it I have to change or correct or improve? So it's been for me a daily battle much of my life to, to begin the day with yes and not with a no. It's basically waiting for grace hmm. to be the dominant voice, for grace to be the dominant foundation of the moment uh you lutherans understand that <laughs> you're lutheran aren't you i'm methodist actually oh, oh you're right yeah well i'm i'm actually probably as much quaker if you to be honest because oh, really? I'm, I'm at friend university and that's oh sure uh, yeah mm-hmm. right sorry <laughs> <laughs> i always call methodists the kind christians <laughs> yeah, but it's true i've met so many kind Methodist. Now I'm meeting another one. <laughs> so, uh, we uh, have a hard time acknowledging original goodness. We really do. It's uh, it's perhaps because we have a hard time finding it in ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're so aware of our faults and our imperfection, and we're, we carry probably way too much shame and guilt that we're not God, really. Yeah. That we're not perfect. Right. Jesus never asked us to be. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Gosh, there's there's so many uh, questions that I I have, and I I just am so glad that you're able to talk with me today about this. I'm honored. You know, one one last. I love this in in the little the story you tell in in Immortal Diamond about um, the four year old boy whose mother had recently given birth to his sibling. And the little boy reportedly snuck into the nursery and asked his baby brother, quick, tell me where I came from. Quick, tell me who made you. I'm beginning to forget. Why, why is it important for us to know where we came from, to, to, to know our source? I'm amazed at the power of that no- notion and how it's showing itself today, I'm sure you're aware, is in Ancestry.com. Mm. People who are just able to look up maybe three generations back and they'll realize they had a great grandfather 
who lived and died, a great, great, great grandmother who lived and died. And invariably, they will say, this just strengthens me somehow. I think it's why it helps me understand uh, why so many of the native religions of the world amounted to ancestor worship and, mm. and try to understand that in the correct way and why as late as the fifth century, we added to the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the communion of saints. Mm. Uh, it's the same idea that holiness is one and shared. It's a, a wonderful notion, but one that isn't always obvious to most people because, and I know you've heard me say this, I think one of the biggest things that's undercut our capacity to appreciate the gospel is our Western individualism, mm -hmm. that we interpret the whole gospel in terms of the saving of my soul. That just destroys the message at the beginning, in my opinion. It's either we all do this together or it's not done. Yeah. It's not done unto us. If I want to go to heaven without Jim, and Jim wants to go without anybody else, how could it be heaven mm -hmm. if there's that bit of resistance or exclusion or resentment or denial toward any other creation of God uh, and picking you to usually arbitrary things that make them unworthy and me worthy? Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work at all. Yeah. Well, I agree. And I, you know, I think so much of what your work has done, and I think the reason it is so appealing to so many of us is um, you are, without directly attacking uh, that part of us that Von Kahn would call the pride form or original sin, that, that part of me that wants to be me, that wants to be God, that wants to be focused. That want, and, yes. and, and much of our religion, much of the way we even frame our gospel is so self-centered itself selfish. And I, and that's what I love about the universal crisis. And of course, I'm a huge fan of Colossians one. I mean, Colossians good, one, good. one, one fifteen. I mean, that is, that's the place there to start, right? He's there the in, in yeah. image of the invisible God. And so talk about why you want to, you say Christology has to start with, with Colossians and we have to start with Genesis one, not Genesis three. Why, why is that so important, Father Richard? Well, because you start with the positive not with a problem, as we keep saying. You start with the good, not with the bad. And where you start pretty much determines how you do the rest. If you start with a problem, you even see theology as the solving of problems. And then you have to agree with the conclusion of, in our case, of Thomas Aquinas, you know, who was fine, but... He wasn't the gospel, per se. You, you keep creating problems to solve. And even worse, you create a caste system of those who know the answer and those who don't know the answer. And we call that the clergy. Now, I am 51 years a priest this year, so I think I've earned the right to say that. <laughs> Just seeing how much what we call clericalism this dividing of the church into the knowers and 
the laity, the great unwashed. I mean, you Methodists weren't nearly as bad as we were in that, but it showed itself in most churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned me, you were a Quaker. Mm -hmm. And uh, do the Quakers still sit in a circle? Well, uh, it depends. I mean, some some uh, uh, branches of of Quakerism today do that, as but many of them don't. Here in in Kansas, the it's a, it, a church looks quite similar to any other Protestant kind see, of church, except except for the ten minutes or fifteen minutes of what they call open worship, where there's silence. But but yeah, you're right. The Quakers have have a great history of That's that, right. and um, in fact, Richard, I kind of uh, have thought a couple of times. You you'd be a great Quaker, because <laughs> like yeah. what we mean, I mean talk about people who had a contemplation and action. I mean the Quakers, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. they kind of they kind of shamed the rest of us because they were the first they sure against did. slavery. They were first yeah. to reach out Native Americans, role of women, education, on and on. And yet they were also contemplative in their own way. They were charismatic to be sure, but that's um, right. But yeah, I just yeah, I love I love that, and I I, I agree with you. I think when you start with the universal Christ as, as he's the image of the, of the invisible God and everything together in him is, you know, and I, and I love what you're talking about as well, because um, Dallas Willard was a huge influence in my life. He was my main mentor, he and Richard Foster, but, uh, but Dallas would often, he had one phrase he would say over and over. He would just sometimes look at me when he'd see me getting worked up and he'd go, Jim, you don't have to make it happen. You don't have to make it happen. <laughs> I even have a mug with Dallas's face on it. Says you don't have to make it happen, because I try to remember that. Uh, I think that's what you were saying, right? That that there, it's so freeing to know that we're living uh, by God's grace, and we're in in a sense flowing with this incredible power yeah. at work with us. You get it. Wonderful. Thank you. That's so good. Okay, so here's a question from one of our listeners, and, and he is one of your biggest fans. And when he heard you were going to be on the show, he said, please ask Father Richard one question for me. So here it is. If you don't like the question, you can blame Josh. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. <laughs> he wants to know if you personally have ever had an existential or kind of life crisis, and, and how did you work through it? Like what, what, what was helpful to you? I'm guessing Josh is going through one right now. <laughs> That's what, why he asked it. You know, uh... Probably God knew I was too weak. I never had a Damascus Road experience, either of enlightenment or failure. It was more, especially the years between in my 40s, 50s, and 60s, where I just went in and out of immense self-doubt, self-criticism, uh, overly uh, questioning, do I really believe? what I preach to others? Am I a hypocrite? Am I a fool? Are these all just words? Um, so that lasted in and out for 20, 30 years. Most of my midlife was that way. Um, so that would be my existential crisis. It, it lasted over time, mm. but not on one particular day. There certainly were days where it was overwhelming, but it's what uh, made me trust in grace mm -hmm. so much that afterwards I could see that I was not sustaining myself. But you only mm -hmm. see that afterwards, that someone else was sustaining me. Mm. Something else. 
I don't care what you call it. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, uh, it's mercy. It's love. It's goodness. It's presence. All yeah. of those are true. So, yeah, I think I was protected from one huge womp on the side of the head. Mm-hmm. I surely needed it, but I think God knew I was too weak to to work through it. Mm. So, uh, no, I, I don't think I have. Yeah, it's interesting. You said that was in your 50s was kind of the... Especially 50s and 60s, yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm about to turn 78, so mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have that anymore. It's I almost worry now because I don't worry about anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what was it that helped? What, what Or what changed? I mean, you said mercy. You were carried on by mercy or grace. Or... Yeah. Just that I could see the pattern, as Dallas Willard apparently told you, that I don't have to do it. It's been done to me again and again and again. All I have to do is thank someone, uh, trust in someone, and that gratitude, that trust comes rather easily now mm-hmm. because I can see the pattern. Yeah. yeah. And you you write about that in, in The Falling Upward. I mean, the idea uh, that we spend, I share with our listeners who probably maybe don't know, some might not, your understanding of how we spend the first half of our life kind of building our own kingdoms and queendoms and establishing ourself. And then the second, uh, say a little bit about that, because I think people would, would connect. Yeah, and, and, and make sure you didn't do it, but uh, that you don't make that a bad thing. Right. You know what I mean? It's, you'll see the largely egocentric concerns of your young 18 year old teenage kids, but don't call it that. Uh, an 18-year-old has to feel famous, good, important, loved. You know, he, he or she wants to be the center of the dance floor, at least for his or her 20 minutes of fame. <laughs> That's the building of your ego structure. And uh, psychologists uh, now tell us that you, you can't let go of the ego which mature religion is clearly talking about until you first built it. Mm. Uh, and and uh, then you see how insufficient it is wanting to be famous or wanting to be first, mm-hmm. wanting to be right or wanting to be uh, anything perfectly. Just I am who I am, who I am, who I am. And that, thank God, is what God loves. Mm. That grace only comes in the second half of life. Mm-hmm. And even then comes slowly because you feel like you're being a bit of a sluggard. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. what they used to call us in the seminary if we weren't trying hard enough. Well, maybe I am a sluggard now. I hope not, but <laughs> it, it just feels like I don't have to try to make reality happen. Yeah, I'm on a on a in, on a river mm-hmm. that's allowing me to do the back float, and I can just enjoy the ride now, the good yeah. and the bad, the right and the wrong. I don't need to prove that I'm morally perfect or that anybody else is morally wrong. Oh, it's such a relief. 
Yeah. Such a relief, such freedom. That's what I was going to say. Such freedom. You know, I, I, I read somewhere that you, you said something like every day you pray for a, 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 a one humiliation a one day. One humiliation every day. And I haven't had it yet today. So maybe you can offer me one. <laughs> I don't think it's going to come from me. I'll tell you, I, I'd be, I don't even know how I would. But, but. Well, I have to watch how I respond to humiliations that usually aren't directly imposed on you, but just people who don't respect you, know you, make place for you in, in even minor ways. If you find that that's offending you, I always have to say, now, Richard, what part of you is taking offense? Mm. Paul says in Corinthians, love takes no offense. Wow. Mm -hmm. If I was perfect in love, I would never take offense. I believe that. Yeah. And that's, so that's a wonderful thing because you've achieved sales of books and your fame and, and people loving and adoring you. And, and yet here you are every day asking for at least one humility that, that shows that you've, You've got it. That this, this isn't what matters, this stuff. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Let me talk a little bit about the body because uh, you, one of the things I appreciate about your work is that you you talk about how we haven't done that well within Christendom in, oh. in terms of, of the body. And I love it. Even in one of your appendices in, in The Immortal Diamond is learning how to pray from the clay, which I love that. Oh, yeah. for, I've been using that. But oh, yeah. what, what's the struggle with our bodies? How how I mean, we're clearly... Jesus was embodied, we're embodied, God loves matter, right? So what is our struggle with the body and how do we see it rightly? For some sad reason, Jim, the body seems to hold inferiority. Uh, you see how people shame about various body parts or their face or their hair. It takes on such a huge importance. And people's sexual sins are the ones that without any doubt carry the most shame. The body is shameable. And as I've always said, isn't it ironic that the religion, our religion, Christianity, that believes Jesus, our God, became a body in Jesus. We have such an undeveloped theology of embodiment. And that's true of every denomination I've worked with. I just don't hmm. find one that has a clearly enlightened understanding of embodiment. Uh, and, and so as a result, now we live in a hedonistic, materialistic culture where the pendulum has just swung the other way, where, well, it's a culture of addiction, basically. Right. Addiction at all levels. So I, I wait to find the midpoint. But we haven't helped people very much. Even my Catholic Church, this imposing of celibacy. Uh, we know, okay, apparently Paul and Jesus were celibates. But unfortunately, it took on in many of us uh, a real feeling of this was the superior way, closer to God, if you never had sex. That can't be true. And I just know it's not true experientially. I just have met too many deeply holy, loving, mystical people who fathered five children, you know, or mothered uh, 
three children, whatever it might be. So uh, we've just got it wrong. I don't know that I'm giving you an answer, but I do think we have to call our insufficiency into question, that we mm -hmm. haven't done the body justice. Yes. Yes, I fully agree. And it's a part of it's a part of the issue of acceptance, I think, as well. Yes, and yes. Uh -huh. Let me let me quote from Universal Christ uh, on page twenty nine. I love this quote. You write, faith at its essential core is accepting that you are accepted. We cannot deeply know ourselves without knowing the one who made us, and we cannot fully accept ourselves without accepting God's radical acceptance of every part of us. And God's impossible acceptance of ourselves is easier to grasp if we recognize it in the perfect unity of the human Jesus with the divine Christ. Start with Jesus, continue with yourself, and finally expand to everything else. Can you riff on that a little bit? Start with Jesus, continue with yourself, and expand to everything else. Yeah, you know, uh, in Franciscan Christology, we uh, using Colossians and Ephesians especially, we saw... Jesus, now we didn't use that word in the 60s, but Jesus as a holon, as a fractal, as, as the microcosm of the macrocosm, the one who held the whole picture in one person that put humanity and divinity together. And that's what we're still trying to do. We don't know how to do it. Put male and female together, I believe. Put a, uh, yeah, humanity and divinity. Put embodiment and spirit together. He reconciles all things in himself. I think you even uh, mm -hmm. mentioned that quote from Colossians a minute ago. Right. That was central. The, that's what it meant that Christ was the alpha of history. The, the beginning point was the statement of putting it all together. Mm -hmm. Then God rolled the universe out. And for 13.6 billion years, we've been trying to put together what was already put together at the beginning. And the omega point is what's drawing us forward. This cosmic Christ at the end of history. Now, admittedly, this is Christian vocabulary. I don't think everybody has to use it. In fact, I'm, I'm, disappointed that often it's Buddhists and Hindus who seem to name this better than Christians. They don't use the word Christ, but we we understood Jesus somewhat well, but not really, but not Christ as this form that formed the universe. He became the blueprint. Maybe that word works for mm -hmm. most people. Uh, now, when you start with the concrete, with the specific, with the particular, you've heard me say what Walter Brueggemann taught me. The, the particular is always a bit of a scandal. It's merely anecdotal. It's, it's too specific. But that's the only way the human mind can usually start. Mm. You get it in one place. We call it the sacramental principle in Catholic theology, and then you universalize, oh my God, what's true here might just be true everywhere. And that's your whole life. 
making what is true here everywhere truth. Mm. Mm. Uh, little by little, you peel back the onion and you say, this dog, this tree, this moment, this uh, period of history is also the human and the divine coinciding. I hope that doesn't sound like too sophisticated theology. It's really so simple that it's hard to teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's back to the soul, right? I mean, it's, it's in some there sense. There you go. Yeah. Mystery. It's just a little too hard for us to grasp. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, Buddhists and, and, you know, Muslims or Hindus, whoever, uh, Father Richard, if you say a word, because there are some people, and I'm not one of them, who sort of think, well, he's straight outside of orthodoxy. You know, Richard Rohr is now, uh, you know, and I've heard you say, look, I'm too old to worry about that. But what would you say to 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 those listeners who might be going, I'm, again, well, I'm not in that camp. What would you say? Sure. Well, I, let me assure people, first of all, I'm very concerned, and it's important to me to be orthodox. But what most people call orthodoxy is merely recent tradition or cultural tradition or the way they understand the third century. That most conservatives aren't truly traditional at all. As you know from my recent books, I'm increasingly loving to quote the early fathers of the church, especially of the Eastern church. And most of us Catholic or Protestant know almost nothing about the Eastern Fathers. So when people drop that word orthodoxy, I don't mean this in a cynical way, but I am usually not that impressed <laughs> mm -hmm. because I know how long it's taken me to begin to integrate all the centuries, the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Eastern Church, and then I was given permission in the Second Vatican Council, which happened in the early 60s, to recognize that all of the world religions are words of God. They had to walk a, a middle line to please everybody. And they still held on to the Christian belief that Jesus is the word, the archetype of the whole as I was trying to say a bit before, but they said, we must recognize that God has spoken in every age and every religion. God isn't gonna ignore the whole subcontinent of India or the whole of China uh, with his grace. God could not be that stingy. Yes, amen. And it's, an infinite love could not be that stingy as to limit when I finally realized it was we who limited it to Western categories, Greek philosophy, uh, Western power notions. And uh, what we call orthodoxy is orthodoxy some of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and you talk about Francis. I mean, uh, the orthodoxy of St. I mean, most people would say, yeah, St. Francis was orthodox, but I think many would be shocked to, to think of all the things that you know, brother, son, sister, moon would probably set a lot of them <laughs> out the, out the door going, wait, what is he a pantheist? What is he? That's uh, right. That's he, right. 
so yeah, I love that, and then that's that's that broadened kind of orthodoxy that um, I think that's what I love about your work so much is, um, you know, I had a student ask me, you know, I'm a, I'm a religion professor, and um, I teach a class on on just sort of faith stuff. I taught world religions for a long time, but a student said, you know, why do you believe in Christianity if you affirm these other you know wisdom traditions, these other faiths? And I said. I just can't find anything more beautiful than Jesus. I just, you know, I think it was Dostoevsky who said, if at the end of my life I found out Jesus wasn't right, I would still rather cling to Christ because <laughs> it's just yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. And uh, that, that to me is it. I, I can affirm the goodness within other traditions, but also still say, boy, I can't be sure. Jesus. You know? There's the one and the many coinciding. That's perfect. Yeah. Good. I agree with you. <laughs> I love it. One last question. Yeah, it's about the the nuns, not the nuns like Catholic nuns. N O N E S. N O N E S. Those who who say I have no, they check the box none for religious affiliation, and millennials and Gen Z. They've really responded to your work, Father Richard, in a way that is has been quite beautiful to me, uh, because I work with young people as a college professor and. And I and I recognize this huge issue with the, with the nuns. Um, what is it about what you are saying that is appealing to them? Because they are listening to you, and I'm grateful that they are. Um, why is your work appealing to them? Well, first of all, I, I don't understand why, really. <laughs> uh, more non-Catholics listen to me than Catholics. Because Catholics are uh, more certain that I'm a heretic because they weren't trained in the first thousand years of Christianity, but only post-Reformation, counter-Reformation. So Mm -hmm. um, I think I've always tried to be radically traditional, the way I was just describing it, studying the fathers of the church, studying the Old Testament and recognizing It's not old, it's still operative, but not in a literal way, but in a highly symbolic and metaphorical way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet being educated after Vatican II in the late 60s, I was given a, a very progressive understanding of the traditional doctrines of the church without throwing them out. And that's what I've tried to spend my whole life doing. What does that doctrine really mean? Not just repeating it as a cliche. And I think young people especially seem to be impressed that I try to hold on to scripture and tradition while adding experience. And that's been the weakness of both Catholic and Protestant Western theology. We didn't encourage or validate individual experience, Mm -hmm. which is what you're going to filter it through anyway, whether we validate it or not. So we might as well bring it to the surface and say, you're going to read scripture through the filter of your own experience. You're going to read tradition through the filter of your own experience. Admit that. And let's work with it. Mm. Uh, that makes sense to the to the millennial for some reason. 
more than half of our staff here, there are about 50 on our staff, are millennials. Hmm. That's interesting. And it still amazes me. I always say to them, why do you like me? And I... <laughs> they're very, very trusting of me for some reason. You know, James Chong, he was um, one of the leaders at InterVarsity uh, Christian Fellowship and their evangelist. He said this to me about five years ago. He said, um, he said, you know, the baby boomers responded to truth. Like we wanted to be apologetics was important. Yeah, yeah. And then with, with sort of the Gen X, it was goodness. It was the, we, they responded, they were come from broken homes and and a lot yeah. of brokenness and just the good was important. But this is what he said to me five years ago. He said, the only, the only way to reach the millennials is through beauty. And, and I, I think that's my answer to why I think they respond to you is because what you talk about is beautiful. I mean, people may say, Oh, it's maybe it's not this, maybe it's not that. But when you talk about the goodness of that's, that is in all of us and you're, and you're not fighting anymore and you're not arguing at anybody, you're just, you're espousing the good and the beautiful and the true, which Balthazar said are always one. You can't separate the three. That's right. Um, and, and I think that's why your work's appealing and why I find so much joy and hope in your work, because I, I think it's, it's our best shot. And so I'm grateful, Richard, that you have been faithful to your, your calling and, you know, the, just God designed you and, uh, to do the work you've done. And it's been so beautiful to see, and I thank you for it. And, um, I'm grateful that you, um, have said yes. You've said yes. So many to every day, even said yes to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, that's one of the best compliments I ever got. I thank you for your humility and freedom to say it. I hope it's true. Franciscanism felt that beauty was when you put the one, the true, and the good together, the final result will always be beauty. Mm. So uh, I like that. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you for your time. I'm just so uh, glad that Lori helped connect me to you and, uh, <laughs> and, and our Kansas connection and that you were um, able to be with us on the Things Above podcast. So thank you, Father Richard, and I hope to see you face-to-face one day. God bless you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Father Richard Rohr. I know I did. So much good stuff to think on. Lots of thoughts from above there. I hope you join me next week for episode 100. Until then, you can join me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above.